0: Yeah, welcome, great to see everyone today. This is it, this is the day we've put on the calendar, the day we've been praying about. We had our soft launch dates over the summer or the last three weeks, and then our vision nights over the summer, but this is the official launch of Redeemer Church, and we are so, so excited that you're here, Nine, eighteen, twenty, twenty-two. We just wanna say a big thank you to everyone that was praying this past week, our week of prayer. We also wanna just say thank you to every person that's jumped into any of our serve teams that we've had. And then uh, also, you know, so many of you guys just really came up to us after the announcement was made that we're planning a church and said, hey, we're all in. And that just means so much to Travis and I. We just wanna extend a special thank you to those individuals as well. And a very big thank you to Rock Harbor Church uh, to the leadership there, just for taking a step of faith to just allow all of this uh, to happen. And so we're just amazed, encouraged, overwhelmed, and just uh, we, we just can't say enough uh, about what the Lord is doing through his church. And so so as Travis stated, today we're continuing in our sermon series called Ecclesia, where we're answering this big question of what is the purpose of of the church. And so the first week we talked about when we come into relationship with Christ, we're saved into the church, we're placed into the church body as members of the household of God with Christ as the cornerstone. And then the the next week we heard from Travis and he talked about sanctification, that the church's role in sanctifying the body of believers. And then last week we talked about attenders and members responsibility to the church and then the church's responsibility back to the members as well. And so, what does that look like through the process of membership? And then today we're going to be talking about the church again. Surprise, surprise. What is the glory of the church? And, and we're going to be looking at a very specific passage where Jesus uses this word kahal, which is in Aramaic, but when translated to Greek, it means ecclesia. Uh, the called out ones, um, a gathering of the redeemed, a gathering of believers. And this is the first time we see this reference to Jesus Christ talking about the church consisting of both Jews and Gentiles um, in the word. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, I'll give you a moment to get there. But this is a very powerful passage of scripture and it's really leaning into the aspect of answering the question, of who is Jesus who is Jesus and you know we'll get into that in great depth but I just want to share this after first service this guy came up to me and he said you know I read this book and you know this this guy was asking people who is Jesus to you and before he could even answer the question he just wept he just wept for three minutes because that's how important jesus was to this individual and and i hope today's message we'll be able to see the height and depth and the breadth of who jesus christ is to us as believers and who jesus christ is to the church so matthew 16 verses 13 through 18 it states this now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is and they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it pray with me. Lord, we just are in awe of what you're doing through your church. God, just to be able to be here, God, it is such an amazing blessing to see how you continue to, to work and move. But Lord, I would just pray today, allow this passage of scripture to speak to us as far as what are your plans? What are your purposes for the church? But moreover, Lord, we just, ask that you would allow us our our minds to be illuminated so that we would with full assurance and full security know who jesus christ is we commit these things to you today in your name amen have you ever been around someone for a length of time and you didn't necessarily uh, know some accolades or accomplishments in which they've you know, done in life, right? And so it's kind of, they just, you know, they're humble, so they're not, you know, like the other end of the spectrum, which might be like, you know, the, the guy that shakes your hand and, and you know, before you even start the conversation, he's trying to validate himself with everything he's ever done in the world, every accolade and accomplishment and, and, you know, just in a real braggadocious way. And so, but but then there's the other end of the spectrum, which it's like, man, this this person's kind of a big deal, but you wouldn't know it. And so that that was kind of my experience with small group, a, a few years ago, we had this guy in our small group, and, um, you know, I knew he'd played some tennis, and, you know, maybe I didn't ask enough questions to say how much tennis he actually played, but but anyhow, we had a small group at their place, and um, I kid you not, they, where their dining room table was supposed to be, they had a ping pong table. I'm like, all right, that's cool. And so, um, you know, we started playing some ping pong. You know how it goes. Oh, ping pong table or pool table. So like everyone plays pool, everyone plays ping pong, but then there's, sometimes there's some real ping pong players, and there's some real pool players, right? And so we started, you know, just batting around the ball, and then the great reveal took place. <laughs> it's like, okay, this guy really knows what he's doing. He's like 10 feet back from the board. He's putting some crazy spin on the ball, like a full body motion, like boom, and then it's like, you know, spinning all over the place. The only thing he was missing, I was half expecting him to go back and put on some short shorts, you know? Those professional ping pong players, like, I was like, you can't go on public like that. But it was crazy, I mean like this guy was really good and you know, I was just thinking well, you know, if you're if you play tennis You're probably good at ping-pong. So afterwards I, I just said bro I mean you are like John McEnroe a ping-pong. I mean, how how'd you get so good? And He's like well, you know ping-pong and tennis they, they just kind of go hand in hand and, and then I just said how much tennis Did you actually play and he said well, I was state champ. Uh, you're a state champ? Really? Yeah, I played four years in college. Really? Like, we've known each other all these years, and you never even talked about how much tennis you actually play? And so it's kind of, you know, one of those things. Not quite the extent of, you know, our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, revealing himself to his disciples, but, you know, it was kind of a a little bit of a reveal there. Uh, You know, and some of you guys are like, hey, have you ever heard of my pickleball game? No, I don't want to hear about your pickleball game, because everyone's got a pickleball game these days, right? So I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it's good. But anyhow, in some ways, this is kind of what we're dealing with in today's text, the disciples they had been with Jesus for quite some time. They, they knew he was a great teacher, they knew he was their rabbi. they had seen the miracles that he performed. they, they had witnessed his teachings about a heavenly eternal kingdom. they knew that there was something different. they knew could this be? The Messiah is this the long-awaited Messiah that we've been hoping and, and praying for but at this point Jesus Christ had not yet revealed himself to the world he had not yet revealed himself to his disciples and, and so it had not yet been self-proclaimed so everyone was just kind of like is this the Messiah is this the Christ and, and so as we see from the, the text uh, some believed he, he was John the Baptist Herod Antipas believed that he was John the Baptist resurrected and undoubtedly he was haunted because he had John the Baptist beheaded. And so it states in Luke 6, 14, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. He was probably like in a state of uh, alarm to say that he, he's come back. And so, but no doubt, you know, just recognizing what he had done, he had, he had put the Lord's prophet uh, t- to death. And then some believed he was Elijah. And what do I, what do we mean by this? And some believe that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Elijah, prophecy. In Malachi 3.1, it speaks of this forerunner, a a herald that will come before the Messiah comes. And and so many thought that this was Jesus. Jesus was the, the forerunner. Jesus was the herald. But Jesus states in Matthew 17 that Elijah has already come. So what he was referring to, because the disciples affirmed this, they said the disciples understanding that he was referring to John the Baptist so John the Baptist was the forerunner the the herald and the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy and then many were saying that this is the, the prophet Jeremiah who is reincarnated. And, and they looked at the similarities of their criticism of, of Israel and this combination of uh, authority and, and sorrow. Many people refer to Jeremiah, Jeremiah as uh, the sorrowful or, or weeping prophet. And later Christ would be known as the suffering servant. And so despite the fact that Jesus had not revealed himself to the disciples or to the general public, some would refer to this as the messianic secret. And that's a whole different rabbit hole out of the the gospel of Mark, that Jesus was waiting for a definitive time to reveal himself to the world. But this shouldn't be of any surprise, should it? I mean, the disciples had eyewitness accounts. Uh, They had witnessed his teachings. They had witnessed his sinless life. They they had this degree though of ambivalence about who Jesus was, but but that's where you see today's society, today's world, today's culture. We have an overwhelming uh, amount of evidence that that validates and says that Jesus is who he says he is, and, and yet some are just kind of saying in a state of of disbelief that I don't know, may, maybe he is who he says he is, but. Maybe not, but who really cares, right? So, so really we have to answer this question of who is Jesus. And, and that's our first point today. It's a simple question, right? I mean, if, if Jesus was here on this earth, could you only imagine the whole litany and array of responses that you would hear to answer that question of, of who is Jesus? Like Jesus is my homeboy, right? Or, or Jesus is this, or I put a little Jesus on this when I'm not feeling so good, but Jesus is Lord. And so really to answer that question, it, it doesn't really, you know, we're not gonna cover it in the brevity of a 35 to 40 minute message, but at least can we highlight some aspects of the factual evidence that exists to verify that Jesus was who he says he was? You know, some of the following points are, are just gleaning some, from some great apologists of our era that, that really lean into to facts and, and evidence and, and reason to answer this question of who Jesus is. You know, I promise not to get too much into the weeds here. I might lose some of you already. I'm like, what are you going to be talking about? Like, I, I, I'm a little sleep deprived right now. So if I see you sleeping, I'm going to call you out. Uh, but I'm just kidding. But here's the thing. I, I don't want any of us to be flat footed. If someone asks you, why do you believe in this stuff that was written 2000 years ago? Like, seriously? And, and I don't want us ever to be like, well, I don't know. That, that's a good question. I want us all to have an answer. And why? Because it tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor the Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, but do so with gentleness and and respect. So what is the hope? What is the reason that that we do all of this? And and we should be able to give an honest answer, an honest answer. Defense. And so we're going to look at a, a couple things, and just real briefly skimming the surface of it, not getting too in depth. Obviously, you know, there's been books and, and volumes, and and you know, graduate papers that have been written on you know just one of these topics alone. But but the first one is the cosmological argument. I know, it's a, like whoa, where'd we just go there? But this says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. And if the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause for its existence. And what that means, just from a, a theological perspective, is, is this. It, it means that when we look at the universe, when we look at this world, when we look at creation, when we look at the grandeur of just this world that we live in, you know, some of us have been in situations and places where it makes us feel so small, and we look and it's like, wow, wow. It's just immense. All of the, the heavens and, and the earth and, and everything. And we have to look at the intricacies of the human mind, our, our physiology of our makeup, you know, just the, the creation of, of a birth. You know, All of these things, we have to stop and say, there has to be something, not something, but someone who created everything. I mean we can't just say hey we all came into existence by rubbing some carbon molecules together the abiogenesis of you know that that just like really and so how are we supposed to look at that we have to say that there is a creator and if there is a creator this creator is all powerful in order to be and do everything that is around us and this creator if he's all powerful then that would mean he has a will and a purpose and a cause for our existence and so what is it who is this creator the, the age-old question of of who is God who is God uh, I mean there are many gods right if there is a God which one is it which one is it I mean we're not gonna take time to refute everything but can we at least say this that we have some validity behind Christianity so what about the fulfillment Uh, based on how one interprets messianic prophecies of 300 to 450 messianic prophecies being fulfilled, meaning that from the Old Testament, Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that. So 300 to 450. Now, one scientist, you know, one, you know, math nerd went, went down this road. Any math nerds in here? Just, I don't know. But he went down this road. A couple guys right there. He's wearing Fila, so f- for sure. <laughs> so he, uh, he went down this road and he said, in order for an individual just to fulfill eight of those prophecies, the, the equivalent would be one to the 17th power. Do you know what one to the 17th power looks like? Well, it's like if you had a silver dollar, which I tried to find one, but who's got cash these days, right? Or coins? Um, but to take a silver dollar not just to take one silver dollar and some of you have probably heard this analogy but if you were to cover the entire state of Texas in silver dollars and not just a layer of silver dollars two feet of silver dollars that is what it would look like for one individual to find one coin for the fulfillment of eight messianic prophecies so just like get your mind wrapped around that in of itself for one man to fulfill all of those prophecies is a one- to the17th power chance of it actually happening. And here's the thing: Jesus Christ not only fulfilled all of those messianic prophecies, he fulfilled them to meticulous, meticulous detail. And all you have to do is read your Bible. Or what about secular historians? And what do I mean by that? Well we have and can look to the writings of non-Christian secular historians that had no skin in the game. Me- meaning that their goal, their purpose was not Jesus Christ or Christianity, their goal and purpose was history. I, I wanna make sure that, that I'm documenting these things appropriately, because that's my job. We could look to a Jewish historian that many are familiar with, Flavius Josephus, who wrote of Pontius Pilate. He, he wrote of Herod the Great. He wrote of John the Baptist. He wrote of James the Just, and he wrote of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Independent, non-Christian Roman historians whose sole purpose was just to document crucifixions. We, we have Roman historians such as Tacitus and uh, Serapion, sorry, Marabar Serapion. These individuals, <clears throat> I was thinking, don't mess up this word and I forgot his first two names, but. But these two individuals were Roman historians. Their purpose was to document Roman history and and Roman crucifixions. And they documented the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. We also can look at uh, eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts that Jesus appeared after his resurrection. we could see that he appeared to the disciples. He he appeared to over 500 individuals. Altogether, Jesus appeared 10 times in, in the Bible. And then, but what do you do about These individuals that were around Christ, cowering in their faith, and then all of the sudden, they're supercharged for their faith, witnessing being persecuted and even being placed um, and put to death. And speaking of put to death, how do you explain the martyrdom of all of the disciples, minus Judas, who took his own life, and John, who died on the island of Patmos? How do you explain that? How do you explain a horrific death, a grisly execution, you know, being, you know, crucified upside down or, or beheaded or, or tortured. How do you explain individuals going through that for a lie? I mean, I understand if you're going to endure some persecution and maybe some rough times, but, but to have your own life taken after you just saw your buddy's life taken, like you know what's coming, and they, all of them, they gave their life as as martyrs. When, you know, a few years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Chennai, India. And, you know, that's where Thomas, Thomas, doubting Thomas, that's where he was martyred for his faith at the hands of Hindu priests. And, I mean, it's a real place. It, it really happened. It's documented history. This is where it took place. How do you explain the explosion of Christianity, you know, in the first and second and third centuries? Just so many people, an explosion of Christianity that the faith never existed before Jesus Christ. Now all of a sudden, thousands, which is now millions of people, ha- have a life in Christ. How do you explain that? You know, 3,000 people at the day of Pentecost after Peter preached in the book of Acts, you know, followed by, you know, up to 5,000 people giving their life to Christ. And again, it's just not these, these individuals and the apostles, that, you know, they had this radical change and radical transformation they were cowering. Uh, they were they were just saying like, I don't know what to do. Our our Savior is dead. And then all of a sudden, they're supercharged. Peter preaching, Paul preaching before for kings and and individuals that they knew their life was in their hands, and still they preached with boldness. How do you explain that? How do you explain two thousand years of Christian history where we that was passed from Jesus Christ to the the apostleship to the early church fathers? We could look at the ecumenical councils. We, we could look at the transition into the Protestant Reformation and and how the the Bible was translated. So we have the very words of life sitting before us, even on our phones. How do you explain a transformed life in Christ? It's unexplainable. How how do you explain that guy that you know, that gal that you know, that was heading for a road of destruction? We've all been there. Or maybe we don't know someone, but maybe we've been there. But heading down that road, and God plucked them out and said, I have something different for you. And there's this radical transformation that is unexplainable unless you ascribe to the fact that it's completely explainable. How do you explain that transformation in your own life? How do you explain, this is the direction I was going, but now I have Christ? And now this is the direction I'm going. What's your conversion story? But none of this really matters without the resurrection. How do you explain a man who led a perfect sinless life who prophesied his own death and resurrection and did exactly everything that he said he was going to do? No, the disciples were not lying. They were not hallucinating. They were not drunk. The women went to the correct tomb. They did not steal the body. No, Jesus did not have a twin. Jesus actually did die. He was pierced with a spear in his side after going through one of the most grisly executions a body could go through. Jesus Christ did die. There's no farce. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 14 and 17, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If the resurrection did not happen, Jesus Christ is just another dead religious leader that you could go visit their tomb. No one in history has ever done or will ever do what Jesus Christ did. Basic logic states that if someone is right then everyone else must be wrong or everyone's wrong because not everyone can be right if everyone is saying different things. So we have to arrive at the fact that Jesus Christ is the only logical explanation. He is the answer to all of these questions. At the end of Christianity, we have our questions answered. At the end of other world religions, oftentimes there are just more questions C.S. Lewis's trilemma states that he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's who he says he is. He's either the rock in which you stand on, or he is a rock of offense. How can one just say, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, he was a, a good moral teacher, he was a good man, he was a prophet? I mean, that's as illogical and nonsensical and incoherent as anything. It states in Ephesians there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one God, one Father overall, who is overall, in all, and through all. He is not a Savior, He is the Savior. He is not a God, He is God. He is God. He proclaims Himself all throughout Scripture. In John 8 58 he states truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am I am he is the radiance of the glory of God he upholds the universe by the word of his power according to Hebrews 1 verse chapter 1 and some of us may be struggling with that question just as the disciples had this degree of ambiguity but Peter, Peter made this wholehearted confession of faith. And that leads us to our last point. The Lord will build his church. Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered again, blessed are you Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus blesses Peter for this confession. All the disciples maybe had this intuition and had this inkling that Jesus was the Messiah, but nobody else other than Peter had the boldness to say, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are the long awaited Messiah. And we're not gonna spend a great deal of time on this today, but this passage at hand is one of the more controversial passages, actually. And so they're like, good job, John. (laughs) Way to pick them on lunch Sunday. Why don't you just talk about like experiential gifts of the Holy Spirit or transubstantiation or something like that. But herein lies the controversy maybe around this verse. Briefly, the interpretation of this passage does create a divide between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. The Catholic Church would look at this to validate apostolic succession, uh, papal, r- papal rule over, over the church, m- meaning that Jesus was charging Peter uh, as the rock in which the church is to be built. And so this is where we get the pope saying that Peter was the first pope. As Protestants, we would instead look at a, different, a couple of different conclusions. The first thing that Jesus uses here, two different words for the word rock. Jesus states that you are Peter, Petros, little rock. And I will build my church on the rock, Petra or Petron, the, the, the large rock. And he refers to himself as the rock in, in Matthew 7 when he's talking about he who builds his house on on the rock, on the Petra, on the Petron. He is the chief cornerstone, as we discussed a few weeks ago. Even though Paul states that, you know, the church will be built on the the foundation of the apostles and, and prophets, meaning that, you know, plural, not just Peter, the apostles and prophets, Paul later recognizes Christ still as this foundation and cornerstone you know, another interpretation of this passage or a leading from the first one is this, that the church is not being built on Peter, but the church is being built on Peter's confession. Confession, and it's the confession, it's the confession of Jesus Christ in which the church continues to be built upon this day, to this day. Now, not to discredit the Lord's apostle or to discredit Peter in any way, shape or form, but just maybe some overview as far as what we find in scripture. the the first council of Jerusalem in in Acts 15, Peter was not in charge of that council. James was. we could also look at the same chapter in which the passage comes out of that right after Jesus blesses Peter, what does he do a few verses later? He rebukes him. He, He states, get behind me, Satan. Also a very... Um, direct area is this. Paul re- rebukes Peter in, in Galatians two, and-, and why does he do this? Is because Peter was um, really distancing himself from the Gentiles, and he rebukes Paul. Takes some authority to rebuke Peter in, in this in this role, and-, and so now all that's just a little side note, okay? But the bullseye of the text is this: that that the Lord will build His church. He'll build His church, Redeemer Church. It is not going to be built on any person, any human. You know, no church that is indeed recognized as the Lord's church can be built on anything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, hopefully you could say, well, this is my church. I mean, this is where I attend. Absolutely. This is our church, right? But, you know, hopefully it's a church you'll become a member of. Shameless plug for membership coming up here in a few weeks. But, but it's the Lord's church. You know, men could build buildings and organizations, but only the Lord can build his church. And this is what he's promised. The Lord's counsel shall stand, and and I will accomplish all of my purposes, he states in Isaiah 46.10. Our responsibility is not to build the church. Uh, our responsibility is to be holy. Our responsibility is to be faithful. Our responsibility is to be obedient and and just get ourselves to a place where we could be used as a faithful instrument to the Lord so he can build his church. And if the Lord is building it, it cannot be stopped. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that should be a huge, overwhelming blessing to us. Like, we get to play a part in one of the most amazing manifestations of the Lord's work here on this earth until he returns or we see him one day. Again, this is the first time we see the word ecclesia, and it's used to address today's message the glory of the church. What is the glory of the church? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the glory of his church and, it, and it's his church that he's building. And how is it being built? It's being built on the faithful confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is who he says he is. It's from individuals recognizing that, repenting and stepping into life, being transformed from being dead in the trespasses and sin and taking a step into newness of life. That's what building the church is. That's what the glory of the church is. I was saved in a church. I was eight years old. I remember it like it was yesterday. I knew the Lord did a work in my life. I knew I had assurance. I knew I had security. Did the Lord have to continue to do a work in my life? Absolutely, through sanctification. You know, late in my 20s. That's when the Lord had to do that work. But guess where it was? It was through the church the Lord uses the church not only to save people that aren't don't have a relationship with him the Lord uses his church to sanctify a body of believers and I'll never forget I, I had a patient years ago and she was in her 90s 90s and, and she was you know been a you know follower of Jesus and she was a little girl like decades upon decades and, and she said this words I'll never forget John I bring my friends to church so that they can get saved. It's like, wow. I'm like, you go, young gal. 90 years old, you're still inviting your church friends to church so they can get saved? Praise the Lord. And hopefully that is how the Lord builds his church. Absolutely, wholeheartedly. But you know what's even just as cool? It's just as awesome and amazing when we... followers of Jesus know our faith so we could share our faith know our faith so we could share our faith and what does it look like when you just invite someone to coffee and they have questions like who do you say that Jesus is what are your spiritual beliefs or you ask those questions and leads to a conversation where you plant some seeds or or maybe you go for broke and, and just say hey would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today I'm gonna lead you through that sinner's prayer that can happen that happens that's an amazing thing. And you know, it's just as cool seeing someone give their life to Christ through the church. It's when one of you come in, came in and just says, hey, this is my friend so-and-so. They just gave their life to Christ. And here they are sitting right next to me. That's amazing. That should make your heart sore. That should make the church just, you know, being fulfilled to to say like, these are the purposes of the Lord's church and that that should just be the wind behind our backs. And that's the glory of the church that the Lord is building it. Peter made this confession, right? We see Peter made this confession, but have you made this confession? Have you made the confession that you can faithfully and honestly, with full assurance and full security, security, Answer the question of who Jesus is. So our third point is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? Knowing all the factual evidence that we reviewed earlier, how one answers this question answers everything. It answers everything. It answers, everything. It answers Where and you're going to spend the rest of this life? Where and who you'll spend all of eternity with? Have you made this confession of faith? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. With Christ being the Hebrew word for the promised Messiah, the Davidic king who would be called God's son, according to Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 the long-awaited Messiah and Savior that the Israelites had been waiting for. Peter confessed it. Peter affirmed it. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus states this. He states, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And I will go in and out and find, and he will go in and out and find pasture The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Have you made the confession that Jesus is the Christ? Have you walked through that door? Have you found pasture? Have you recognized that I am a sinner in need of grace? and there's nothing i can do it it's like the analogy of you being placed on trial for murder and you saying to a just judge hey judge is it okay if i just go wax your car w- will you let me off scot free all of our good deeds are like filthy rags known as righteous no not one all of sin and fall short of the glory of god have you repented have you not only just said hey i'm a christian but I'm a follower of Christ. That's what it means to step into newness of life. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be saved. And I hope some of you make that decision today. But there's another group of people that I want to talk to in this room as well, and that's us as believers. We at times find ourselves at this crossroads of belief and unbelief. It's we'll undoubtedly be there. I mean, we go through hard and difficult trials and the worst of times you say, Lord, where are you? Like I- I'm here, but, but so often we struggle with this assurance of our salvation. You know, even in this passage today, so many of the disciples were in the state of ambiguity. You know, our faith will waver even with all of the evidence around us. But just know this, as a follower of Jesus, we have eternal security. If we have a life in Christ, 1 Peter 1, 4, he states this, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Jesus states in John 6, all who come to me, I will never cast out. He states later in John ten ten, I give them the gift of eternal life and no one will snatch them From my hand but still we live in this fallen world and sometimes our faith struggles and I just want to encourage us that we have this assurance and security in which we've been called but sometimes we lack the assurance and why because we're not living a life that is being called to the manner by which we've been called and that really allows our assurance to waver A life in Christ means that we have a new life. It it means that we have the Holy Spirit conviction that we have a distaste for our sin and a a zeal and a hunger and thirst for righteousness. A, A life in Christ means that we regularly contemplate what he did on the cross that he laid down his life for us. And we rejoice in that. A life in Christ is a transformed and regenerated life, and it looks different than the world that we live into. And the question is, is there evidence of a transformed life with us? Is there evidence of that? Because what it means, it means regularly walking through the narrow gate, the narrow gate that leads to life. It means picking up our cross daily and following after him. Oftentimes, doing these things gives us the assurance of our salvation, which reminds us of the security of our salvation. You may have heard the statement, well, there's probably a lot of people in the church today that aren't even saved. Well, number one, don't say that. (laughs) That's for the Lord. And number two, May that not be the case in the Lord's church. We all have a responsibility to say, like, do you have a life in Christ? You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was one of the greatest expositors of our era. He preached 366 sermons on the book of Romans alone. His own wife was unconverted until being under his teaching, for two years and realize she did not have a life in Christ. Now, there may be some that, you know, I I did this and I I raised my hand, I filled out a card. Absolutely, that could be your conversion story. But if you do that and you go back to a life that looks completely different, that's good. But what happens when you go to the life that was exactly the same? There hasn't been any change. There hasn't been any transformation. Or maybe it's something different. Maybe you live a life of religion. Maybe you live a a life of roteness. Your faith is external. Rules, religion, legalism. You've never really wrestled with the fact that I'm a sinner in need of grace. You're just going through the motions. Have you ever truly exhibited a genuine love for Christ because of what he did for you? He laid down his life for you. Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead? God doesn't want you to be in a state of ambiguity. God doesn't want you to question your faith. He wants you to be at a place where I have Holy Spirit-empowered assurance and security that I'm the Lord's, that I'm gonna be in the kingdom someday. And so I don't want anyone to leave here without answering the question of who do you say that I am? And I just wanted to give you guys an opportunity if you feel like the Lord is moving in your heart, you know? We wanna have the opportunity for the church to be a place where I came into relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And so uh, Ralphie's so thankful for Ralphie that was your cue, Ralphie. But he's such an amazing blessing. And Luke up there. But we're just going to sing a song. What are we going to sing? Blessed, blessed Assurance. What, he was, we we're just talking last night. He's like, why don't we do Blessed Assurance? I'm like, yes, brother. But we're going to have some people down here. If you wanted to come and pray, just have some questions, we'll, we'll be here. No, no pressure. If you want to just sign a card and follow up with a conversation, that's amazing as well. And... Um, Hey, even if you just need to come down here and receive some prayer or hang out afterwards and and talk, some of us will be down here. But um, again, I'm just so encouraged by what the Lord's doing here. And uh, I just pray that you all pray the same thing. Lord, Lord, what is it that you have for me through your church? And maybe it's a new life in Christ. Let me pray. Lord, thankful for your word and we're thankful for who you are and more importantly, what you've done. And so God, we just ask that you would continue to do a work in us through your church. God, we love you. God, may we always be able to answer the question of who do you say that I am? With assurance, with security. God, knowing that Our faith without the resurrection is futile. We are still dead in our sins. But Lord, you not only died for us, you were resurrected three days later, and now you are seated at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning supreme over all authority, over all dominion, over all power in this entire universe. And God, for that, we are so thankful. We ask these things in your name. Amen.